Well, we made it through chapter 1 of Romans. Another 15 chapters to go. And I trust that uh, we have known uh, the Lord speak to us uh, thus far. Uh, It hasn't been easy last week uh, and it's not necessarily going to get any easier uh, this week or in uh, the next couple of weeks as we uh, we dig into the nature of uh, human sin and God's judgment. Now Paul knows that uh, particularly the Jewish Christians in Rome who have read or heard what he's just said in chapter 1 will be saying to themselves yeah that's true of all those people out there the Gentiles the Gentiles who live in ignorance of God and his law the Gentiles who have given themselves over to sexual immorality the Gentiles who even use temple prostitutes in their worship the Gentiles who bow down to statues and shrines. It's the Gentiles who are described by chapter 1 verses 29 to 31. Let's read that again. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I was, um, when I'm looking at this, this passage with students, I always say, did you notice the disobedient to parents in there? We may not put that in that, the category of all these terrible things, but it's right up there along with haters of God and inventors of evil. Now Paul knows that these Jewish Christians will be thinking this way, it's the people out there, because he himself is a Jew and he once thought that way too. And so he he knew that the Jews of his day were inclined to be very judgmental and separatist They would separate themselves from anyone who didn't fit their definition of holy, clean and righteous. But also because this attitude to always think of other people when it comes to sin and unrighteousness is something that we as human beings are inclined to do. Judgmentalism is an intrinsically human thing, an intrinsically sinful human thing. Just think about it. Whenever you watch a movie or a TV show that has the, uh, the, it involves good versus evil in some way, we'll mostly identify with the characters in that show who are on the side of good or who have good natures rather than the evil person and we rejoice in the end when mostly the evil person is defeated or killed or humiliated. Now this is because deep down we know that good should triumph over evil 
And as Christians we know not only that good should triumph over evil, but that good will triumph over evil. So there's an intrinsic thing within us that demands and likes seeing justice done when good defeats evil. But why is it that we normally look down on the bad guys and identify with the good guys? We look at the bad guys as if to say, well I could not ever do what they are doing. I think we love reality TV for the same reason. We get to look voyeuristically at people who do foolish things or who argue in public or who damage their relationships in front of our eyes. They act in all kinds of bad and embarrassing ways and we like it. Why? Because we can look down on them and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. We feel better about ourselves because we think, I wouldn't be like that, surely. And those of us who don't watch reality TV are now tempted to look down on those people who do watch reality TV because we think, well, I would never stoop so low as to watch reality TV like that person. See, being judgmental is so much a part of our human nature that it's almost impossible to get by in life without being judgmental or without feeling superior in some way over others. And so as we read or hear that passage I just read from chapter 1, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, thought, well that's not me, that's those other people out there. And that's why chapter 2 verse 1 is such a devastating indictment. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Now Paul here uses the word for human being when he says man. It's the word anthropos from which we get our word anthropology. Uh, Human being. And he's highlighting that this is not a Jewish trait. It's not a Christian trait. It's not a cultural or religious trait. It is a human trait. It's what human beings do. We judge others. And at the same time, we're not willing to admit our own guilt. See, Paul is not just been describing people out there. He's been describing people full stop. He's been describing us in here. I'm sure you know the story of uh, the woman caught in adultery who was dragged before Jesus. And the people said, our law says that this woman should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus did this thing that I don't think anyone has been able to adequately explain why he did it. He bent down and he wrote 
in the sand with his finger. Almost as if to say, you guys just don't get it, do you? He stood up and he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now he was actually applying two rules that they had from their own tradition about how the law should be applied. The first was that if someone was to accuse another person of a crime, their accusation wouldn't count if they themselves were guilty of that same crime. So Jesus is actually saying, if any of you here are not guilty of adultery, then you may throw the first stone. The second is that if someone is found guilty of a crime requiring stoning, the one who brought the accusation had to throw the first stone. Now, they were very good principles because it would make you think twice before accusing someone falsely. To think that you threw the first stone would mean their blood is on my hand. Well, we're told that the crowd left one by one, starting with the eldest, those who had more wisdom. And the woman was left alone with Jesus. And he was the only one there who was actually qualified to throw the first stone. The only one without sin. And even though he knew the charge was true, because he tells her to go and sin no more, it wasn't a a false accusation. He knew it was true. He offered forgiveness instead of condemnation. He didn't overturn the law at this point because he was in the process of fulfilling the law in himself. And the basis for this woman's forgiveness was the same basis as our forgiveness. Him going to the cross to bear her sin and her shame. So the only person qualified to throw the first stone is the one who would bear her sin. Now this is a story about Jesus having compassion on a woman but it's more about exposing the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees who thought that somehow their role as the leaders of God's people, the Jews, made them more righteous than others. And Jesus' action and words exposed their hearts for where they were. That they were no better and they were no worse than the woman that they were wanting to stone. Look at verse 3 of Romans chapter 2. This is the height of arrogant human presumption. Do you suppose, O man, O human being, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? That God's judgment will fall on those 
people out there, but because of some intrinsic betterness in me, I'm justified in doing the same things. We do that all the time, don't we? We notice other people's sins before we notice our own. Now our sins might not look exactly like another person's sin. Any good Jew wouldn't have gone to the temple prostitutes like the Gentiles did. But as we've been seeing, the heart of sin is not sinful actions, but it is a heart that is turned against God, which then manifests itself in sinful law-breaking. And because we are all different, our sins will differ. But the underlying heart problem is the same. When we dig down, the heart of every human being is the same, is equal. The only difference between me and an ISIS terrorist is that I haven't had the same opportunities as they have to express my sinfulness. I simply express my sinfulness in a way that is much more sophisticated and much more respectable and acceptable to our culture, but it is sin nonetheless. So my sinful human heart presumes that God, if God shows any kindness towards me, it's because I somehow deserve it. And so I can feel affirmed in my, myself and in my goodness. God shows kindness to me, that must make me uh, be special. But what does verse 4 tell us? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now this verse is often quoted in the context of discussions about evangelism and mission and how we are to go about it. Often it's quoted by someone who feels uncomfortable with Christians or the church talking about sin. They suggest that we should only ever talk about God's love for people because talking about sin and judgement will only put people off. By only referring to God's kindness we will attract people. But what does Paul say this kindness is supposed to lead to? Repentance. Repentance cannot happen where there's no consciousness of sin. How can we turn or change our mind about something of which we're not aware? So the point here is not that people need God's kindness, even though they do, but that all people need to repent. There has to be a change that happens in the heart. And God's kindness towards us begins with him telling us the truth about our sinful hearts. Now the next section in verses 6 to 10, I don't know what you thought when you read it or heard it. At first glance it might appear to be salvation by works. Those who do good receive eternal life and glory and honour and peace and those who do evil 
receive wrath, fury, tribulation and distress. Sound like salvation by works? Well, let's look a bit closer. Notice that in these descriptions of uh, people in verses 7 and 8, he speaks both of actions and inclination of the heart. See how those who make it a practice of doing good are demonstrating that that their heart is set on glory, honour and immortality. And those who make a practice of obeying unrighteousness are demonstrating that their heart is set on themselves. They are self-seeking. So here we, even here we see the actions flowing out of the heart. What does it mean to seek glory, honour and immortality? These are three things that are not ours by nature but they are qualities of God himself that he promises to give to his creatures made in his image. They're not ours to grasp hold of, but they're only maintained as God's gracious favour remains on us. They're not ours by right, but only known as a gift received from our creator. They are the good and rightful things that any human being should seek if they desire to be truly human in a right relationship with God. And our ultimate goal for wanting them is not so that we will live for ourselves, but for his glory and his honour and his immortality. So what happens in the heart flows out to our actions as we've been seeing. The problem with the human heart Uh, with human beings, start at the heart and what or who its affections are set on. If we were to think about it as a courtroom scenario, our crime is not our sinful actions. Our crime is our rebellious heart. And our sinful actions are the evidence that is brought forward to prove that we are guilty of the crime. So verse 11 is the crunch verse of all of this. The point that Paul has been leading to in this whole passage, God shows no partiality. He applies the same standards to everyone without looking at their race or nationality or culture or religion or background or age or gender. Before God, all human beings are equal and no one has any privileges that make them exempt from his law. The law says that the sinner will be punished and the righteous person will be rewarded. And we'll unpack that next week. Now verses 6 to 11 are actually in the form of a chiasm. It's a Hebrew way of writing... Uh, to make a point. The, the Greek way of reasoning is you start with an introduction and you present your thesis and you work through the argument and you finish with a conclusion. The Hebrew way of presenting a point is that you start on the outside and you work your way into the middle. So very often uh, the key points 
of something that's been said in, in a Hebrew chiasm is both at the beginning and end, but also in the middle. So the, the main point that Paul is making here is that God doesn't show favouritism. God is always right, always fair, always just when he judges. That's the, the main point he's making, but the focus then is like in the middle. What is it that makes every human being the same before God? Well, it's that we are unrighteous and we do evil. The fact that all are sinners. God treats all people the same because in the matter of sin, we are all the same. The two things that you have in common with every other human being on this planet, you are made in the image of God and you're a sinner. You may differ in every other respect, but those two will always be the same of you as a human being. The sad reality is that try as we may, we will never find a person who fits the description of verses 7 and 10. We may know people who do good things or seem to be nice, good people and many of them are sitting here in this building. But to find someone who only ever does good and who only ever does it with a pure motive of seeking glory, honour and immortality, we'll never find someone like that. Would God give glory, honour and peace to a person like that? Absolutely. Do any of us deserve that from God? Absolutely not. Now, from time to time we may hear the accusation of hypocrisy levelled at the church or at Christians. Some may even say, I'm not a Christian, or at least I believe but I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. And I think when people say, I've had enough of organised religion, generally they have an experience of it of some kind of hypocrisy or judgmentalism in the church. There's a report that's just come out recently, uh, a survey done of um, Australians into the faith and belief of Australians and their views of religion. And I found this section very interesting. When you think about Christians and Christianity, to what extent to the following negatively influence your perceptions. So when people have a negative feeling towards the church or Christianity, uh, here are the, the key issues that they listed. Sorry, it might be a bit hard to read, but I want to draw your attention to the third and the fourth one. The third one is hypocrisy. Christians not practising what they preach. 41% of those surveys said, yeah, that puts me off Christianity. And then the fourth one is judging others. Christians acting self-righteously and pointing out the faults in others and in society. 38% said that completely puts me off 
Christianity. Quite telling, isn't it? And we, as the church, need to look at those statistics and be ready to repent for the times that it is true when all that people have heard from us is judgmentalism and when all they've seen in us is hypocrisy. But even those statements, I can't be a Christian because there's too many hypocrites in the church, if we're honest, it still doesn't set us free from the trap of judgmentalism because those statements are saying, well, I'm better than those people and those institutions and those hypocrites. I'm not a hypocrite like them. I don't deserve to be troubled by them or influenced by them. See, we'll we'll never get away from judgmentalism and hypocrisy. The reality is that the church is absolutely full of hypocrites. Every single person in the church is a hypocrite because all of us, every single one of us, know what is right but we don't always do it. We know what is wrong and we do it. That's what a hypocrite is. Someone who says and upholds one thing but does another. See, the church is full of hypocrites because the church is full of sinners. And the reason it's full of sinners is because it's full of human beings. And the whole world is full of human beings. Therefore, the whole world is full of sinners and is full of hypocrites. The only difference is that a Christian recognises their hypocrisy and doesn't claim to be able to rise above it in their own ability. Instead, They live a life characterised by repentance. I think I put this quote in the newsletter from Martin Luther. This is number one of his 95 Theses, the document that sparked the Reformation in Europe. The first thing he said, number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not just something we do at the beginning and then we're okay after that. Repentance is essentially coming before God and saying, Lord, I'm a hypocrite. I need your mercy and grace every moment of my life to save me from myself. May anyone who looks at me not say, there goes a good person, but there goes a person who lives by grace. Well, there actually is one who fits the description of verses 7 and 10. The only person who was never a hypocrite. The only person who was qualified to throw that first stone because he'd never sinned. And because of this one, because of Jesus Christ, This scenario that Paul is painting isn't one that ends in hopelessness. Jesus is the only human being who by patience in well-doing sought the glory and honour and immortality. 
We know this because at the beginning of his ministry the father declared at his baptism you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And we know it because at the conclusion of his earthly ministry after he had been killed and buried in a tomb the father raised him up and placed his seal of approval on him and gave him glory, honour and peace. And he now lives forever. He has eternal life and he gives glory, honour and peace and eternal life to all who come to him. The Gospel is that this one, this Jesus, came and stood in the place of us, of us who are self-seeking, of us who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. And he took upon himself the wrath and fury and tribulation and distress that we deserve. It was on this basis, as I've said, that Jesus could say to that adulterous woman, I do not condemn you. It's on this basis that he says to anyone who comes to him by faith, I do not condemn you. And here's the the wonder of grace It's on that basis that Jesus can look at the judgmental hypocrite and say, I do not condemn you because all of your judgmentalism and all of your hypocrisy was borne by me at the cross. My aim this morning was not to leave us squirming in our seats knowing our hypocrisy and feeling as if we're trapped in this, that no matter what we say about another person, we're going to be judging them. No matter what we do, we're going to be hypocrites. I want us to see that, but I also want us to to see that amazing grace of Jesus that looks at us, the hypocrites, It looks at us, those who presume to judge others and says, even that was borne by me at the cross and you can know freedom and forgiveness.